children who are with us from kindergarten through second grade are welcome to Children's Church, which you'll find through this door over on the left side of the sanctuary near the piano. And uh, can I ask the rest of us to take out our Bibles and open to Isaiah? And we're in chapter 49. If you're using one of those pew Bibles in the hymn rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 726. And uh, what I find in this passage is a great encouragement, the promise that Christ will win the nations and he will fail his way all the way to success that uh, he'll fail his way to his goal. Christ will win the nations. Christ will be honored and adored worldwide. And that's the, that's the kind of thing I see here in this, uh, this prophecy written 700 years before the coming of Christ, and yet it's such a clear prophecy of the Messiah. And uh, Jewish and Christian interpreters all agree that it's pointing to this, this ideal figure, the Messiah who is to come. And, uh, and he will uh, win the nations over to himself, but he does it by a road that none of us would have advised him to take, a road that involves uh, not achieving his goals as he seems to set out to accomplish them in any direct sort of fashion, but rather he accomplishes them through meeting failure. And uh, so God seems to do things upside down. God conquers the world by the cross, not by power, not by splendid arguments and ideas, but by the suffering servant. And uh, so this is the one that we meet here. Jesus, here in this passage, I believe, is calling the nations to attend to him, to listen to him, and to hear, who, hear all that he has to say to them uh, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. He starts out in verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. And then he gives the reasons why they should listen. And as I go through the passage, I see that he starts talking about his preparation and how he's uniquely prepared for the role of Savior and Lord. And then he talks about his sending in verses 5 and 6 how he has been sent on a special mission uh, to reach the world. And then verse 7, how he is received, the results, the outcome of his mission. And so as we, as we go through this, though, we do see this theme all the way through this little servant song, uh, uh, chapter 49, verses 1 through 7, this theme of suffering, this theme of failure, of rejection and uh, the servant is rejected it, it, uh, it's puzzling why is it that God seems to do things upside down but this is an encouragement for Israel Israel is reading this servant song at a time when they're realizing uh, that Isaiah's prophecy is going to come true that they're going to be exiled because of their sin that they're going to lose their land, that they're going to lose all the, uh, the, the trappings of their relationship with God, 
that they're going to be sent away to a foreign land, that they're going to lose all the familiar things, all the things that give them a national identity, all the things that give them security and peace, and that they're going to be in a foreign land, uh, in, in real misery, in exile, that they're going to suffer real loss, that they're going to be a complete failure, an object of scorn, and they're going to be ashamed. And in the midst of that, God wants them to remember that God uses failures. God uses failures like yours and mine. He uses failures like you and me. God uses failures. He picks up the broken pieces and he makes something new with them. Let's just read uh, this passage and uh, hear what God's word says. Isaiah 49, the first seven verses. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So, uh, God uses failures. This is a, a word of encouragement. It's a word of challenge for us that God doesn't just stop with small goals, but He has the nations in mind. And that God is not daunted by the fact that we might be rejected or we might fail if if we set out to serve him. God picks up the pieces and makes something new. So as we look at this and we see, uh, indeed, it seems to be a picture of of Jesus failing. But uh, is is it because there's something wrong with Jesus that he fails? is there something about him that comes short? Is, is Jesus in any way imperfect? Is this why he seems to fail in his mission? No, far the reverse. He is, there's nothing wrong with Christ. He is, uh, he is perfect. And so the, the focus of these first verses is, how, is on how wonderfully prepared he is for success. God prepares his servant for success and, uh, and leads him into failure. 
God prepares Christ for an outstanding ministry. He gifts him and equips him with everything he needs to be an outstanding success and then brings him into the world and he meets failure. It's the same irony that if you, if you read the Gospel of John, the first chapter, it presents Jesus Christ as the Word of God who was with God in the beginning and He became flesh. He came and dwelt among us. He came to that which was His own. You know, He came to His own nation, Israel, but His own did not receive Him. And uh, it, it's amazing. How could they not receive Him, the Son of God coming? But to all who received Him, He gave the right to become children of God. And so here too, He's perfectly prepared. Look how He's prepared, uh, even with advanced preparations in verse 1. Before I was born, the Lord called me. And from my birth, He has made mention of my name. And of course, uh, in, the, in the original language, or if you have a, a King James or some other version than this one we're using here. Uh, you might see the, the words there where we have that I was born and from my birth, that it's really the words having to do with my mother's womb. From the womb, you know, God has set me apart. And uh, a reminder again of how Christ was born of the Virgin and that God had promised ages before that the woman would have a child who would crush the serpent's head. And, uh, and even in Isaiah, the, the promise that a son will be given and the government will be upon his shoulders. God has been doing advanced planning, massive advanced planning, preparing his son to come and rule and to reign and to have a wonderful, amazing success. And look how he is equipped. Look how the servant is equipped. Verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword, so that the, the word that Jesus speaks is effective and powerful and achieves uh, whatever he sets out to achieve. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And then uh, later in the verse, he made me into a polished arrow. A polished arrow is one that is true in its flight. Nothing, there's no friction in the air. The thing is clean and true, and straight, sharp, it accomplishes the purpose for which the archer sends it. Jesus is a polished arrow. He is uh, uh, perfectly equipped and reliable to do everything that God sends him to do. And uh, then, then we look uh, and see that, uh, that he's hidden. He's hidden in, in the hand. He, God hides him in the hand that he conceals him in the quiver, he's ready for use. Whenever God needs him, he's there ready to be used. And, uh, and, and so he's a perfect servant. He's not like uh, the other servants that God has had. You know, Isaiah is a, a great, faithful, reliable prophet, but he never puts himself forward like this kind of, of perfect servant. Uh, Israel is God's servant, but Israel is presented as blind and deaf and dumb. What's the matter with Israel? How come they keep following these idols? How come they're afraid of all these people and all these other gods? Why don't they remember and fear me? But here is a servant who is perfect. 
who, is, uh, who can accomplish everything that God wants him to accomplish. And then what is the result? Verse 4. Um, verse 4. I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. And so Christ came and indeed he labored, he taught, he did miracles, he was amazing for three years and then he was crucified and there was no one left. His few disciples who remained were discouraged and you remember the story as some of them were on the way to Emmaus and they're talking to one another and they're saying, well, we, we thought he might have been the Messiah. We thought he might have been the one, God's chosen. But they were completely discouraged. Jesus came and he lost everything. A complete failure at the cross. But what's his attitude at the end of verse 4? In the midst of this, his attitude is to look to the end. Not to settle with just seeing how things are right now in the midst of the failure, but to realize that God has a purpose beyond the failure and to look to the end. And so he says in verse 4, Yet I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with God. God will uh, uh, settle things in his time. And God has a plan and we don't need to measure things where, where we are right now. You know, I really learned about failure myself and, uh, and my need for this kind of message. Uh, when I was, uh, one time that it really came home to me was when I was serving as a missionary over in East Africa. Of course, you know, missionaries are all extremely spiritual people. They don't have any, um, uh, you know, they don't have any selfish motives or um, messiah complexes, anything like this. They're, they're just very pure people who've been called. Uh, so I, I was working in a, in a rural area and a good friend of mine uh, became the national director for our, our mission organization in Kenya. And a fellow's name is George Wambaleo. Good guy. And I had a chance to spend some time with him. I was talking to him. I said, oh, George, this is so great. You're national director. You just must, you must be thrilled with, you know, all the things that you can do now. And, and uh, you've got all this opportunity now, so you've got this position. And uh, his response maybe isn't so surprising. He said, you know what? I, I really would rather not be national director. Yeah, it's not so surprising, you know, looking back at it. You know, of course, it's a lot of responsibility. But what was surprising was how I responded to his response. I said, what? You, you, you wouldn't want to be national director? You know, I just thought, you know, you want to move up, you want to get more position. I don't know why I was like that. I mean, if that was my kind of attitude, why did I choose the kind of career I chose of, you know, overseas service and helping the poor with agricultural work and preaching the gospel? You know, it's like, hello, uh, you're in the wrong line of work if you want to be ambitious. But Ambition has this way of sneaking back around and getting us when we're not looking. And uh, we do get success-oriented. And we get wedded to a particular success. And then, uh, you know, God has his way of reminding us that he doesn't depend on our success. 
that God uses failures. Uh, even in that, in that area that you think, oh, no, I can't fail in this. God has to succeed in this. And God has to come through. Uh, God uses failures. And it's a word of encouragement to us. Um, so what is the outcome of the servant's failure? Here he is. He, uh, he's come. He's all ready. And, uh, and, and nothing seems to happen. He, he labors to no purpose. And he spends his strength in vain. I'm going to have to grab a drink of water if you'll excuse me. Excuse me. So what's the outcome of his efforts? Uh, as we look in verses 5 and 6, we see, his, uh, we, we see that God sends his servant beyond the failure. So the servant comes. He's so well prepared. He's just this awesome guy. He's the secret weapon in God's arsenal. I mean, he can do anything. He comes and he accomplishes zilch. But God sends him beyond the failure. What's the outcome of the servant's failure? It's a promotion. Boy, if I, if I could only get a deal like that. Uh, so, verse 5, we see his initial, his initial mission. And then verse 6, the new mission that God gives to him. So, verse 5 is his initial mission in which he seems to have encountered the opposition and the resistance and the failure. So verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, remember how well prepared he was, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. That was his mission. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. Remember how well prepared I am. So amazingly well prepared. All I had to do was bring Israel back to God. Um, but God says, verse 6, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. All that preparation and uh, no results and then the, the outcome of that is a promotion. You get a bigger job, a thicker portfolio. So, so Jesus is sent to reach the nations. Well, you know, you, you failed at the task I gave you. Uh, you failed to bring back this one nation. They completely rejected you. You ended up with absolutely no one you know, on your side. You're crucified. The whole thing's over. So here's the plan. Now you're going to reach all the nations. So uh, God raises him from the dead. He appears to his disciples and he uh, sends the Holy Spirit and he sends the good news out to the ends of the earth. And it's amazing. In, in 300 years, Christianity is the, the main religion of, of the Roman Empire. And the world is, is changed. It's never been the same. No life has ever had the impact of this one life of Jesus Christ. So, out of his success, God sends him on. Out of his failure, God sends him on to, to an amazing success. And uh, why is the first mission 
too small. Why is God sending him on a larger mission? Partly it's the, it's the way he is prepared, all that preparation that went into getting him ready. And maybe God has poured a lot of preparation into you. Have you ever stopped to reflect that you have the Holy Spirit, that you have Christ, that you have the promises of the Word of God, that you've received teaching, you've received amazing, tremendous gifts, and God has prepared you. He's been at work in you with advanced planning from uh, before you were born. He's also been working in you. And God has prepared you as well. And maybe, maybe the task that you're about is too small. Maybe the mission that you thought was really what God is calling you to, and you're really seeking to do what God is calling you to, Maybe it's too small. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, I want to earn a million dollars or I want to, you know, be, become the CEO of my own corporation or whatever. I mean, you, we, we have all kinds of goals, you know. But I'm talking about when you really look and you say, this is what I really believe God wants me to do with my life. And uh, maybe it's too small. Maybe God wants to do something even bigger than you've imagined. All that preparation that's gone into it. But the thing that really prepares Christ to go on to the bigger things is that he is tempered by failure. He was tempered by failure. He was prepared for a greater work and a greater effectiveness by his failure. Tempering steel is a process of straining the metal by some extreme conditions. You heat up the steel... Uh, to a very high temperature and then you very quickly chill it, maybe plunging it in, in water. And this uh, rapid uh, shrinking that it goes through creates some stresses in the metal and the metal changes as a result and it, it, uh, it puts stress on all the stress points within the metal. And then what you do with the, the steel that you want to temper is you reheat it again, not quite as hot, and then you cool it slowly. So there's sort of a healing process that follows all that stress. So uh, in the same way, we go through the stress of encountering failure and then God brings some healing into our life and we're tempered. And uh, it's a great analogy. You know, the, the tempered steel is more flexible and it's also tougher. And a person who has been tempered by failure is more flexible. They're more humble. And uh, they're not so brittle. And they don't snap so easily. They're tougher. Um, God tempers us by failure. Maybe you've experienced your share. Maybe you've been well-tempered. And you're ready to take on something new. Uh, take on a new challenge. Maybe God is calling you to something. Maybe in the church maybe something in the neighborhood, in the workplace. God is calling you to follow him, to use the gifts, the skills, the abilities, the ways that he's prepared you to serve him, to serve his kingdom, and especially to be a light to the nations. That what God is really doing with Christ is spreading the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. It's not just about building this community here, this church here, or my pleasant Christian life here. But it's his kingdom spreading to the ends of the earth. So Jesus uh, is so well prepared. 
he encounters failure and uh, from the failure he's sent on to a, a, a second higher mission, a, a larger mission, then what are the results that Jesus gets? And in verse 7 we see the results. Uh, and the result is that he's honored throughout the nations. God sends his servant out of the failure to triumph by failure. Jesus goes and he wins the nations, again, not in the way that we would advise him to do, but he wins the nations through the cross. He wins the nation through that, through the, he wins the nations through that very emblem of his failure, of his rejection, and of his suffering. And so verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And so we see... uh, Uh, what he's saying is that the nations will give honor to you. When it says kings will see and rise up, princes will see and bow down, it's two ways of saying the same thing. Rising up, getting up out of the throne is a way of showing honor. And bowing down in amazement and awe at at the majesty of Christ is a way of showing him honor. The kings rise up The princes bow down. These are the representatives of the nations. And the idea is that the nations are paying honor to Christ. People around the world, the Gentiles, the nations, are paying honor to Christ. And uh, so Christ is massively successful in his mission. As you look around the world, do you see that? Do you see that Christ is massively successful? That the nations are paying honor to him? But this is the promise that is written. In the same way that it was written here that he would be rejected and despised and abhorred by the nation, the first nation he went to, and the disciples didn't catch it, that it was written that way. And it was true. In the same way, it's written that he will be honored by the nations. Do the disciples catch it? Do we believe that it's true? Do we believe that the cause of Christ, spreading the name of Christ around the world, is a cause which will ultimately fail or succeed? I believe God is saying it will ultimately succeed. Of course, there will be you know, the rebellion and the Antichrist at the end, and ultimately there will be, you know, all kinds of things happening. But there is a fullness in the plan that God has for reaching the nations. Just let me read to you some scripture from the New Testament on that. That God wants to reach the nations. He plans to reach the nations. God will reach the nations. And the nations are not yet reached. Uh, Listen to this in Matthew 24, in verse 14. Uh, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And uh, twice in the book of Revelation, we have 
we have in chapter 5 and verse 9, and also chapter 7 and verse 9, we have uh, words to the same effect that Christ is winning a multitude from every nation, every people, tongue, every tribe, every language. And uh, here's what it says in Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Every people, tribe, language, and nation. There's a fullness to the plan of God with the nations. Listen to Romans 11 and verse 25. Uh, Paul says, speaking to Gentiles like us, Gentile believers, people from other nations, not Israel, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Gentiles is just a word that means nations. Sometimes they use the word Gentiles because it seems they're comparing it with Jews. Gentiles just means the nations, the full number of the nations, the full number of the Gentiles. There is a fullness in God's plan for winning the nations to Christ. And that's what we see here in this servant song. The servant will suffer. The servant will fail but the servant will ultimately triumph. So, in his triumph, though, he goes uh, with the cross front and center. Who is this one whom the nations will honor? Who is this one who kings will rise up and honor? It is the one who was despised and abhorred. The words are so strong that he is completely rejected and considered a thing uh, you know, that you can't even touch. He's despised and abhorred, and he is the one who is now honored. Uh, Christ is honored through the cross. Maybe, maybe to the people in Isaiah's day, this verse would have been a mystery. You know, how is it that he is honored? What do they honor him for? How does he get to, to become so honored? But for us, it's not a mystery. We know the Son of Man is glorified at the cross. And the glorious thing about the, about the Son of Man is that terrible day, that good day, when he died for our sins. And that that emblem of his failure is what leads in God's triumph of winning the nations. That we who have tasted failure before God because we aren't what we should be. Now we have a Savior who has tasted failure. He knows what it's like and uh, he is sympathetic and he is gentle with those who struggle with weakness and failure. So God works in an upside down way. God seems to do everything upside down and backwards in reaching the nations, in reaching the world. Uh, He doesn't do things the way that we would advise him, but God doesn't have a board of advisors or a board of directors. He is a solo operation. 
No one gives him counsel. But it seems fitting that God should do things in an upside-down way when he's reaching people like us because we are so upside-down. You see, if you try to come in and, and reach a people who stand on their heads and walk around on their hands, then what you've got to do is stand on your head and walk around on your hands with them. Otherwise, you know, you're just talking to their feet all the time. And so, because we're the people who have turned our back on God's power, on God's glory, on God's majesty. We're the people who have gone off the straight path. We're the people who have uh, thrown ourselves into failure and misery and sorrow and death. Then in order to reach us, the Son of Man had to become like us and walk on his hands and stand on his head. What a crazy world. But when someone comes to Christ, he gets right side up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have tasted of failure and that you have triumphed. Thank you that we can face challenges knowing that even if we fail, that you're there to pick up the pieces and make something new. So Father, give us boldness. Give us courage for the challenges that are ahead of us in this new year. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now we come to the Lord's Supper. These emblems of Christ's rejection, these emblems of his great